You know, I just want to say, brothers and sisters, I so enjoyed last night, and I want to thank you for leading me in worship this morning and leading us in worship. What a beautiful picture of heaven. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation singing and glorifying God together for eternity. What a beautiful picture. I'd like to pray with you for a moment as we begin. God, we bow in your presence. And these things we've been singing, these beautiful truths, these transformating, transformational truths, that you love us in a way that goes beyond words. How grateful for that. How grateful that you created all that there is, as we sang in the first song, and you maintain it and have established it. And now as we look in your word, which is another way of revealing your nature and how you are and what you have for us, we pray that you'd speak into our life um, in a way that touches us, but more than just head knowledge, but transforms how we do life. So we invite you to do that now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Which neighbor do I love and how do I love them? Last week, we were talking very specifically about the neighbor that lives right next door to us, or two doors down, or across the street, or across the cul-de-sac, and we talked very practically about ways that we could go about loving those people in a way that's deeply sincere, that's relational, that invites that kind of relationship that might one day lead to an opportunity to share Jesus with them. Sometimes those neighbors are not just across the street, but they're out in the community. And about 10 days ago, I was out in the church parking lot doing something, and this lady approached me, And I'm not good with ages, especially women's ages, but I'm going to guess she was 40-ish. And she came up to me and she said, am I parked in the right spot? Her car was out in the back 40 of the church parking lot. And I said, absolutely, you're parked in the right spot. And she said, you have no idea how much it means to me to be able to park in your church parking lot. And I started to say, well, you know, we're glad that we're able to do that for people, and it's, it's something that we really appreciate being able to do for folks. And she almost cut me off, and she said, no, you have no idea how much it means to me. I have four kids at home, and I, I've had to return to school to further my education for more opportunities in life. And although she didn't say to this directly to me, I had the sense that she was a single mom. And I got to talk with her for a while. You know how proud I was of our church at that moment? To be neighbors to those people that go to school next door at the university. Because to be honest with you, it's a sacrifice to give out those free parking passes to students. It's a lot of work. And it's absolutely, totally worth it. And what seed has been planted in that lady's life and in so many other lives, when we love our neighbor like that, where we sacrifice and we give to them that way. And we're in the midst of this, what I'm going to call an unseries series, because it, it doesn't seem like a series, but trust me, it, it kind of is. And it's called Neighboring. And it started three weeks ago when we talked about 
the spirit-filled life. We talked about the fact that the normal Christian life, the life that's clearly illustrated in Scripture, and specifically in the life of Jesus as the spirit-filled God-man, is that we're not trying to live the Christian life in our own strength. Impossible to do. We live a surrendered life, a daily surrendered life, where we invite him to fill us with his spirit and empower us so we can live a holy life like scripture talks about, so that we can live a life of service. And out of his empowerment, we do these things. And then the next week on September 12th, we talked about some vision stuff as we launched a new church year for the year. And we said, uh, why am I here? We tried to talk about that question. Why, do I, why am I taking up space on this planet? Why are we secondarily here as a church? And we talked about the idea that God has called us to something bigger than ourselves, something that is beyond us. That's why we need to be filled with the Spirit, something that is transformational in the lives of others, something that is eternal in nature. And so we talked about that. And then last week, we talked about the clear biblical call to love our neighbor. And then, as I said, some very pra- we talked about a number of practical ways to begin a sincere relationship with our neighbor. And we were talking about uh, the latter half of the great commandment, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so in, Inserted in this is the idea that we have to have a healthy self-love that's centered in the fact that we are created in the image of God. This makes us incredibly valuable, that we have incredible worth because of the sacrifice that Christ laid down for us, and that who we are in Christ, which is at the heart of a healthy self-image, who we are in Christ, nothing we've earned or deserved, but been given to us by grace makes all the difference in the world. And when we understand this, then we can love our neighbor as ourself. And we said, then we, we step into the call of moving literally to the other side of the fence. So outside of the literal fence around our property or wherever it is we live, and we step onto the other side of the fence and we begin to cultivate sincere relationships with our neighbors. And as again, we talked about a bunch of practical things. Today, which neighbor do I love? Because there's this mass of humanity out there. Which ones of them do I love? Which ones of them do I serve? And how do I go about that? And if you just look at the life of Jesus who loved everybody, but he didn't have, having said that, a personal one-on-one encounter with each person, say, in the nation of Israel. He healed many people. It's talked about all through the Gospels. And yet he didn't go around and heal one-on-one each person in Israel. So how did he know who to interact with? Which neighbor did he choose? And so let's turn to a very well-known passage of Scripture. If you can, you can do that in your hard copy or in your device to Luke chapter 10. A well-known story, which in my 24 years here, I don't believe I've ever preached on in this setting. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And we're going to read a well-known story down through verse 37. Luke 10, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. 
He was there to get him. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, well, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, uh, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next time, he, the next day rather, he took him. He took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus said, "Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers?" Robbers. The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You ever noticed, and we've all noticed this, that not everybody that asks a question actually wants to hear the answer. We come across people who have no intention, for example, of ever putting the answer the actual answer, in fact, the right answer, into practice. They have zero intention of that. That perhaps their motive in asking the question is something very different than that. Some people ask questions simply because they love the sound of their own voice. They want to be noticed. Some people ask questions because they want to display their knowledge under the guise of asking a question. Look at me, look at how articulate I am, look at how intelligent I am, look at how much I know about the subject already that I'm asking a question about. Look at me. Maybe the best place to start, if we're asking the question, who is my neighbor and how should I love them, is do I actually want to hear what God's answer is when it comes to which neighbor to interact with? And friends, This is right at the heart of how Jesus lived his life as the Spirit-filled God-man, fully man, fully God, but filled with the Spirit. He interacted with his Father every day, many times a day. He was filled with the Spirit, and he responded. If you read the Scripture, he responded as the Father led him. And really, that's the heart at the answer to this question. And living as a spirit-filled person, you interact with the Father, and as he leads you, you respond. There's also some people that ask a question with the sinister intention of trying to embarrass the person being questioned. And that's what's going on in this passage. 
And so one day, a quote-unquote expert in the law approached Jesus. And so when we say expert, what I mean by that is this is someone who is in the one top 1% or 2% of that entire nation in terms of intellectual capacity. They were specially chosen, these experts in the law. To begin with, they would memorize the 39 books of the Old Testament perfect. They would be absolutely familiar with and able to quote vast amounts of the extra writings by the rabbinic authors. They would be thoroughly conversant with these things. They spent the majority of their day sitting around talking about these things, talking about the implications or at least what they felt were the implications of these things, arguing about, talking about the in excess of 600 laws Uh, extra-biblical laws that the Pharisees had put in place to judge whether a person loved God or not. Not scriptural, but things they had added. And this qualified him as an expert in the law. And so he approaches Jesus and he asks this question of him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his goal is to test Jesus, to trip him up, to get Jesus to say something that they could later use against him. It was not a sincere question. And even though Jesus loved this person, because he loves everyone perfectly, he understood this guy's motivation and responded appropriately. And He responded, I think, a little differently than he typically would with someone that has a sincere question. When someone asks a sincere question, Jesus would, or when we do, Jesus will respond with all of the love of the Father in place, with our absolute best intentions in mind. With with this gentleman who he understood his motives were sinister at best as he tried to test Jesus, Jesus answered with a well-known rabbinic Approach, which was to answer a question by asking another question. And the question was meant to show that you understood the question, you could amplify the question, and he responded with a classic rabbinic response, which was to ask a question. And so he says to the guy, well, you're an expert in the law, how do you read it? And boom, the guy bangs out the Ten Commandments by rote. He has summarized the Ten Commandments in those two things, which we talked a little bit about last week. The first part where you love the Lord your God is a summarization of the first four of the Ten Commandments. And then to love your neighbor as yourself is to summarize the latter six of the Ten Commandments. And boom, he bangs it out. Probably had it on a bumper sticker on his vehicle. He probably posted it on Instagram, you know, a little meme or whatever. And Jesus says, bang on, you got it, you nailed it, now go and do it. Well, the expert in the law is embarrassed by this because Jesus has really easily avoided the trap he laid for him. But also it's entirely possible that he's feeling guilty because he, in the presence of Christ, recognizes, I really haven't loved God like I should. I really haven't loved my neighbor like I should. And so he attempts, the text says... To justify himself, hoping perhaps, you know, down underneath it all, probably hoping secretly that Jesus isn't going to tell him to love the people he doesn't really like very much. 
And so he says to Jesus, well, who should I love or help? And how should I love or how should I help them? And Jesus answers the question with this parable, this story, which illustrates a truth. But before we look at that, let me just remind you from last week and reiterate today. When we love our neighbor, we are agreeing with God. Think about it. The first song we sang today, if you notice it, if you remember it, celebrated the creation. Celebrated how God's, the, not only the one that manages it all, that first song just went on and on about how God manages the creation. And it's a reflection of who he is. But not only does he manage the creation, he created the universe. And he cares for the universe and how it works together. He's got all of this going on. And we move from this general revelation as we were singing in that first song to some very specific revelation of how not only does he manage the entire universe and everything that's going on, he loves you. We also sang about that extensively this morning. These wonderful biblical truths that he cares about you. The scripture knows he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you better than you know yourself because he created you. He's got all of this stuff going on and you matter to him. You matter to him so much that Jesus died for you. And so when I love my neighbor... As myself, I'm on the same frequency as God is invested in. And when I want for that neighbor the same things that I, in a healthy way, want for myself, I'm loving my neighbor as myself. So Jesus says this guy uh, is on a trip. And he's on a, it's about an eight-hour walk from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jerusalem is an elevated city, and so it was a bit of a descent. At points, it's more steep, but it's a bit of a descent all the way along. And it's a hot walk. There's very little water, and I've made that walk or parts of it at least a couple of times in my life. I walked down to Jericho once uh, from St. George's Monastery. It's about an hour and a half long walk. And it's kind of perilous. There's very narrow paths. There's lots of hills. There, you know, it's very barren landscape, hills, narrow paths, little caves. Even to this day, there's people living in those caves, monks. And you see them kind of peering out from these little caves from time to time. And so this guy is walking and he's going down to Jericho. He gets jumped by some robbers. He gets stripped of his clothes. He gets beaten half to death. And they leave him at the road, side of the road of the pass or whatever to uh, presumably to just die. A little while later, a priest goes by, and this is back in the time in history when a priest was held in very high regard, and this priest is on his way for whatever he's going to do, perhaps do some sacrifices or things like that, and he sees the guy, it's not that he missed the guy, he sees the guy, and he, pa- he crosses to the other side of the path and just leaves him to his fate. Then a little while later, a Levite comes by, and a Levite is one of the tribes of Israel, specially designated within the nation to serve God and assist in the work in the temple. There was a lot of work in the temple, and they took turns serving in the temple. He sees this guy. 
he also passes deliberately onto the other side of the, of the path and goes out of his way, just like the priest, to bypass him. Then along comes a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan is from the north part of the country of what we would see the map of Israel today, up in the north part of the Galilee, close to the Syrian border in the north, and the Jordanian, northwest part of Jordan in modern-day world uh, right now. The northeast, sorry, part of, of Israel and the northwest part of Jordan. And a Samaritan was someone who was known as a person that had the blood of many nations flowing through his veins. And so he had some Jewish blood, but he was multi-ethnic in his uh, biological makeup. And uh, at that time in history, especially, the, the Jewish people and the Samaritans despised one another. And so when, if he had been in Jerusalem before he was going to Jericho and he'd have been going down the street, if some Jewish people approached him, they would see by his clothing that he was Samaritan and they would cross to the other side of the street. They'd have nothing to do with him. They wouldn't talk to him. They wouldn't be bothered with him. They would not associate with each other typically. But this guy's different. And when he sees this guy half dead, laying on the side of the road. He takes pity on him. He bandages his wounds. He helps him practically. And I'm just guessing, this part I'm just going to guess about, but he's not going to have what we would consider the first aid kit with him. He has some oil and wine, pours that on. I don't know how he bandaged the guy up. Maybe he took his existing garment or an extra garment he might have had and torn a piece off of it and, and made a makeshift bandage. I don't really know, just guessing. He makes room for this guy on his donkey, possibly, again, just guessing. Maybe he had to discard some of his stuff so there was room on the donkey. Uh, at the very least, he didn't ride his donkey. This guy did, so he walked. This guy rode. He took him to an inn, and if you've ever been to that part of the world, there just isn't a lot of Motel 6s there. You have to kind of go out of your way to find an inn. They're few and far between. He finds an inn. He delays his trip. He's quite inconvenienced. He, He cares for the guy overnight, so he delays his trip at least overnight. He hires someone to take care of this guy, and then he says, I'll come back and settle up later. So in answering this experts in the law question, Jesus says, listen, there's really three types of people out there. The first type is the robber type. And they may or may not be the kind of person that ends up in jail from stealing from you, but their ethic in life is this, what is yours is mine at whatever cost. What is yours is mine at whatever cost. And they're the kind of people that come into our life and they leave us physically and mentally and emotionally beaten and bruised. And there's a few of those people walking around the planet. The second kind of people are like the priests and the Levites. And their ethic in life is what is mine is mine and I must protect what is mine even if you get hurt in the process. And they normally aren't bad people, you know, they're, they're, they probably follow all the societal rules like the priest and Levite would, they pay their taxes, you know, maybe they serve on a local board or something like that. Maybe they even coach your kid at soccer, I don't know. But crossing the road to help someone in need when it might cost them significantly, not likely. 
because their focus in life is inward. And if one of the things the pandemic has done, not universally, but I think it's increasingly up the pressure to think inwardly, to think about me, to think about how this will affect me, and I need to protect what's mine. But then there's the Samaritan who illustrates the ethic of a follower of Jesus. And that is the ethic of love. And that ethic is this, what's mine is yours if you need it. What's mine is yours if you need it. My safety is yours if you need it. He was taking a risk here. There's obviously been robbers around. Maybe they're still around. Putting this guy on his donkey is going to slow him down and make it harder for him to get away if they come for him. My safety is yours. My security is yours if you need it. My resources are yours if you need it. Martin Luther King Jr. said this about this passage. He said, the priest and Levite asked, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? The Samaritan asked, if I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? We talked about this last week. One of the distinguishing marks of a biblical believer is outrageous love. Outrageous love. This is, Jesus says this. This is one of the ways they're going to know you're on team Jesus. When you display an outrageous love. And I'm going to suggest, let's just extend the metaphor here a little bit. Um, I think with what we're going through right now in the world, I think we're all right now somewhere on the journey between Jericho and Jer- Jerusalem and Jericho with what's going on. We're all on the eight-hour walk, somewhere on the eight-hour walk between Jerusalem and Jericho. And see, when I agree with the things that matter to God, and say, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, understand, and I think we all understand this, it's going to cost me something. To to see that distinguishing mark on display, it's going to, of being a follower of Christ, it will cost me something financially, it'll certainly be inconvenient at times, it will mean taking risk, it's certainly going to mean investing time, it's going to make me and invite me to take steps into places that I'm not particularly comfortable with. And and Jesus illustrates this. And one of the ways he illustrates this is he says, when you're a follower of Jesus, when you're a biblical believer, the barriers, the normal barriers we have put in place in our life inappropriately, they start to come down. And one of the inappropriate barriers that many have put up is the racial barrier. And this is illustrated in this passage. When I agree with God and my life has been changed by Jesus and has been sincerely transformed by him, there is no more racial barrier. The normal barriers that we have created, sadly created, come down. And it says this in Galatians chapter 3, when I'm a follower of Jesus, one of the barriers, there's three barriers talked about there in verse 26 of chapter 3. One of the barriers that comes down is there's no more Gentile and Jew. 
These racial barriers come down in Christ. And so we see this illustrated in the passage as this, if anybody had an excuse not to bother with this guy, it was the Samaritan. Quite likely if this guy had met the Samaritan, he would have crossed to the other side of the road. The barrier comes down. The original question, remember the original question that's driving this passage. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Part of being forgiven by Jesus, part of receiving his grace, part of surrendering to him. The result is I'm going to have this distinguishing mark of a new heart of love. Andy Stanley articulates it this way. It's a great question to filter everything through. What would love do? What would love do in this situation? So I'm going to suggest that God directed the Samaritan person, Samaritan man, to a specific person, to a specific circumstance, to meet a specific set of needs. I noticed he didn't meet all the guy's needs. Did you notice that? He didn't start having a chit-chat with the guy saying, so you're under a financial crunch. Well, let me teach you how to budget. Didn't meet that need. He didn't say, oh, you're having in-law problems. Who who doesn't? You're having in-law problems. Let me teach you some healthy interpersonal skills. No, he didn't talk about any of these other things. He met a specific set of needs in a specific circumstance with a specific person. And I would suggest that we can become almost numb to the Great Commission because there's this mass of humanity. And we get this in my mind. Well, it's saying everybody's my neighbor. And this becomes an excuse we use to avoid the specific application of loving that neighbor as a self. Because, of course, it's absolutely true that technically everyone is. But when we aim for everything, we're much more tempted to hit nothing. We're much more prone at least to hit less. And so neighboring begins by saying in our hearts, Lord Jesus, would you fill my heart with flexibility and compassion? With flexibility and compassion. Lord Jesus, would you Help me to understand that loving my neighbor as myself is agreeing with God that the things that are important to me, I want for them too. And Jesus, most importantly, would you help me to be in the moment? Be in the moment. So that I begin to notice those neighbors. And I see them rather as nameless, faceless people, but rather that people that Jesus died for, that Jesus loves. And I absolutely believe we can trust Jesus to lead about who to help and how. That he will give us peace as I pray and say, I'm totally open to your direction and your leading. How should I help? Who should I help? Would you deliberately lead me? Would you give me peace about the decision? I'm really looking forward to tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be sitting with uh, about 12 people, and we're faced with this really complex question, and we're really not sure what to do. And what we're going to do for an hour is we're going to do listening prayer together. 
We're just going to say we're reading up on the issue because it's a complex issue, and we're just going to pray together and we're going to say, Jesus, what would you have us do? And we are going to trust that Jesus will lead us to a very biblical, wise, ordained by him approach to this situation, that he'll give us a sense, he might give us a prophetic word, I don't know what he'll give, I'm looking forward to what he'll give, and, and that we will have peace about what we are to do as a group. And so when we pray about these things, sometimes Jesus will say to us, I want you to do exactly what seems most reasonably apparent to do here. And perhaps even what they're asking for. I want you to do it exactly that way. And we'll have peace. In another case, we'll pray and he'll say and will give us a sense and we'll have peace. Yeah, I want you to help them, but not exactly in the way that might seem most reasonably logical and apparent and what they're asking for. I want you to help them, but in a slightly different way. Are you open to that, Scott? And my response should be, absolutely. Sometimes he'll say, yeah, help is coming, but not yet. You really need to wait. This is in process. There's some things that I need to process in them. And, and, And sometimes it's really hard to do that. Sometimes it's easier to just do something. But sometimes it's, it's just, we just need to wait for a while. And then sometimes he'll just say, uh, you need to say no. Because I got another plan here. A better plan, way better plan than you. Am I always certain that I've done the right thing? No, absolutely not. Because people are complicated and situations are complicated. But I do believe this with all my heart, that God will give peace. Especially when I don't understand It may not make sense to my limited, humid cranium. I have peace that he's in charge and that he will lead. You know, it's really cool because I'm in this prayer group with six other men. And we were talking about this very subject 10 days ago. They didn't know I was going to be preaching on this, so now I'm going to use them as an illustration. And we were talking about this very thing. And I just kind of sat back and let them talk. And they said, here's, here's some of the stuff they said. They said stuff like this. They said, you know, we just find when we just have a very open-handed approach to God, where we just say to him, I'm available. Would you help me in the moment, Jesus? I don't have to work at this, they say. And these are hard-charging men. A number of them type A personalities. I don't have to work at this. I find God just generating these opportunities. And I've been finding, they say, they said, God brings specific opportunities across my path. And he gives me a peace of mind as I step in. And when we look back, they were saying, we see how God sets up these meetings. He gives us specific opportunities to love our neighbors, to be sincerely interested in them, to serve them, to point them to Jesus. And I've sat there and I've listened to them tell their stories. I've said very little, hard to believe, right? But they, uh, they tell their stories where they're willing to serve, where they're willing to be available to God, where they're willing to give. And people get loved and people get pointed to Jesus. Willing to be in the moment and say, yes, Jesus. Last week, uh, one of our staff members They were telling me this story. And they said that they were on their way to something, to a meeting with some people. 
But on the way to this thing they needed to do, they needed to stop at Save-On Foods and pick up some stuff, I presume for the thing they were going to, they never said that, but I presume that, and they were running late. So they were a little bit stressed, but they had to stop and pick this stuff up. And so they're driving, they drive into Save-On here on the west side, and they couldn't find a parking spot right away, and so they had to look around a little bit, and then they went to park beside this car, and they realized that the car beside them was broken down. And a guy was standing there and clearly didn't know what to do. And the staff person just said to me, you know, my gut reaction was, I don't have time for this. I'm going to be late. I got to get that. But the stronger reaction was that this person needs help. And that Jesus said, you should step into this situation. Yeah, the people on the other end, they'll understand. Step into this situation. So they got out and they said to the person standing beside their vehicle, do you need help? Can I call somebody? What can I do? And it's a long story, but they ended up loaning this person that they'd never met their jumper cables. Then they went and got their stuff and, and went. And it tur- they talked to this person for a few minutes, and it turns out this person is a U of L student, brand new to our community, never been here before, has absolutely no friends here, no contacts in the city of Lethbridge and knows about as much about cars as I do, which isn't much. And they've texted each other a few times. And this staff person said to them at the time, well, you know, I just work right across from the university. Didn't say they worked at a church, but I just, I work right across the street from the university. And this guy said, well, I'll bring the cables back to you. And they texted and said, I'm going to bring them on like Monday or Tuesday this week. And when this person comes here, it just may be that one of our staff people will have a chance to share Jesus with this person that was in need. Or maybe it will just simply be another step in loving that neighbor as themselves and planting a crucial seed in this young guy's life. I don't know. And I wonder how many people here could tell those kinds of stories. I have a feeling a boatload of you could, where you just said, I'm available, I'm willing, give me those opportunities, Jesus, where I can love and build relationship on purpose. I'm going to invite our worship team to come now. And as they're coming, let me ask this last question. All of these things, or this last statement, all of these things are predicated on the idea, am I willing to move around the other side of the fence.